he immediately got excited about this <laughs> about this horse in the corner of the room and immediately knew that at some point we would be crawling through a tunnel that led from underneath that horse yep. because of this story. Welcome to episode one of the podcast For You, The War Is Over, hosted by me, Dave, the history nerd. And by me, Dave, the tech geek. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at uh, F-I-T-W-I-O. I'm so glad you said that. I still can't do it. <laughs> Which, of course, are the initials for For You, The War Is Over. Um, episode one, we will be covering uh, one of the, what I think is one of the uh, most interesting and uh Certainly one of the more famous escapes of the Second World War. We are, of course, looking at Second World War, prisoner of war escapes uh, in this podcast. So, uh, yeah, we're going to kick off with the wooden horse escape. Um, Dave? Uh, it's a good escape. It is a good escape. It's a fantastic escape. So, uh, yeah, I my interest in this uh, stems from my childhood. Um, I've been fascinated by Second World War escapes for as long as I can remember. I used to read the books when I was a little boy. My... Uh, dad gave me the books in fact uh, so this is one that I have been familiar with since I was about the age of eight uh, so it's a long-standing adventure story <laughs> in my life shall we say so um, The Wooden Horse for those of you who aren't familiar with it uh, took place in uh, 1943 uh, it was the escape of three prisoners of war from Stalagluf 3 the same prisoner war camp as The Great Escape which was to happen the following uh, year following year in March 24th 1944 so this prison's not got a very good record then <laughs> well it did and it didn't um two of the most famous escapes took place from it but I think I'm right in saying that they were the only two escapes that ah, okay. were successful <laughs> from it um so it did and it didn't have uh, a good record um it just seemed to attract high profile escapes <laughs> right, um so three people escaped fr in the wooden horse uh in the wooden horse escape uh, Eric Williams, uh, Richard Codner and Oliver Philpot. Um, we're going to cover Codner and Williams in today's podcast because they escaped together. Philpot, although he escaped through the wooden horse with them, they went their separate ways not long after they got out of the tunnel. Um, so yeah, we're, we will be looking at Oliver Philpot's escape in the next episode, but we're going to look at Codner and Williams today. So, uh, Williams and Codner, who who were they? Yeah, we should probably do a little bit on. Yeah, I mean, it'd be good to know the story, the um, the background, or who our heroes are in this story. Well, quite right. I mean, the the reports that we are working from, which is the original escape reports, don't they're they're not you know they're not biographical. It's, no, it's a report of their escape experience, and it's so, incredible to have them. Though I have to say, the actual just the, the copies of the reports as as they exist from the time yes yeah exactly i mean they're they're a fascinating read and uh, what have you but um as i say they're not biographical so there is some biographical detail but there's not a great deal that tells you too much about them but uh, eric williams was flight lieutenant eric williams he f he was in bomber command uh, Seven Squadron flying out of bassingbourne actually he was a bomb aimer wow. uh, he was actually an architect during peacetime um, and he lived in northwest London. 
uh, actually not far from what is now the RAF muse- Museum, which uh, when I was looking up some of the background details for this podcast, I actually thought was fantastic. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, it's it's with, certainly within walking distance. <laughs> um, so yeah, the RAF Museum, I think it's at Hendon. I think it's that one. And uh, yeah, so that that's Eric Williams. Uh, Richard Codner, there's even less known about him, if you like. Um, he was uh, only 20 when he signed up. Oh, that's young. I know. Um, signed up for the army. Uh, he was in the Royal Artillery. Artillery and he was actually a student uh, when he when he signed up. So he'd already done a year or two at university. I'm not actually 100% sure which university he was at. Um, but in the book of The Wooden Horse, he is actually referred repeatedly to as the child. The child. Um, he was 23 by the time of the escape. Right. But he was 20 at the time he signed up. God, could you imagine being all being through all of that and having been for an escape by the time you're 23? I know, I know. I didn't graduate till I was 23. Uh, it's madness. Uh, I know. So Codner, who fought in the Royal Artillery, uh, was captured at Medez El Bad. I hope I pronounced that correctly. <laughs> Uh, which was during the North Africa campaign, um, about 60 kilometres from Tunis, uh, capital of Tunisia. Um, so, yeah, he was captured there, taken over to Italy and then transported up to Stalwell Three. Flight Lieutenant Williams uh, was uh, in a short Stirling bomber, uh, shot down on a bombing raid over Germany on the 17th stroke 18th. Uh, the night of the 17th, 18th uh, December 1942, and he actually evaded capture for a couple of days. Uh, so he wasn't picked up immediately, but was eventually caught um, and was uh, sent to Oflag 21B at Schuben in Poland, where he actually met Kodner. Uh, they were together in that camp, and that was where they made their first escape to get, attempt together. Oh. And eventually they were sent to Stalwuf 3 in Zagan, which is now in Poland. Um... So they were caught in their first escape attempts. They were caught in their first escape attempts, exactly. But it, it did mean that they had previous escape attempt experience. You and know. they were tenacious. Tenacious, exactly. Um, and it, it, I, it, there did seem to be a certain type of person who would try escape. <laughs> um, it was actually a minority. It was a very small <coughs> percentage of the prisoner of war camp population who would attempt it. Estimates range between 5 to 15%. Wow, that's not many people. It's really not at all. A uh, vast majority were only too happy to not be shot at anymore. I guess, yeah, given the <laughs> choice of being shot at every day uh, or, or being in a place where at least you get security, presumably being in a prison. Yeah. Um, and food, then yeah, I some mean, people have made that choice. You know, a prisoner war camp wasn't exactly a luxury holiday. No, but, true. Um, yeah, I mean, you you weren't on the front line. You weren't being shot at. You weren't being shot down. Uh, you weren't being bombed. It, it was uh, relatively safe. It was relatively warm, and it was relatively well fed, in the sense of there was a minimum number of calories that they needed to receive every single day by legal requirement, and they largely did. Okay, these were supplemented by the Red Cross parcels, uh, right. so they were regularly receiving top ups on that. So they were. As I say, it wasn't Butland. Uh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a holiday camp. I love that your choice to go to is Butlins. <laughs> yeah, which I've never stayed in uh, in my life. But, uh, you know, it wasn't a holiday camp, but it was relatively safe, warm and secure. And so yeah. the vast majority actually took the opportunity to not be shot at for the rest of the war. Even educational opportunities. Uh, you right. could study for your degree. A um, number of people did. In fact, uh, Tolkien marked prisoner war camp exams. 
Really? Did yes. L- little side note. <laughs> um, fascinating little side note. He was known to mark prisoner of war camp exams. I wonder whether he drew any inspiration from any of the exams written by the prisoners. In the mines of Moria, um, <laughs> drawn from you know various tunneling efforts. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a it was a relatively small percentage of the prison population who would attempt escapes, and so yeah, there there's. Um, it was a certain type of personality, and Tenacious is certainly one of them. Um, but we can we can go into that in greater depth in another episode. Uh, it was Williams who actually came up with the uh, wooden horse concept for escape. Um, so maybe to give some background detail, um, Star Wolf Three, uh, as anyone who has seen the film uh, of the Great Escape will know, was on a sandy plain. Uh, trees were removed, so it was surrounded by a tree line, but uh, it was on a sandy plain with a whole series of huts right in the middle of any compound. It was made up of four compounds, I believe, um, and all the huts were located in the middle of the compound, meaning that any tunnels that were dug from a hut had to be around about 300 feet long, which is... It's a long tunnel. It's a long tunnel. It's uh, also, by extension, means that it's going to have high engineering and high construction levels. Um, yeah, because something like that would collapse easily, surely. Yep. In order to get around that, um, in the wooden horse, they uh, decided that they would start digging the tunnel in the middle of uh, the exercise compound. So right. a- every compound had a space for exercise, so whether that was playing rugby, football, hockey, whatever, or just walking around the compound. In fact, I think I'm right in saying that they even established a golf course uh, <laughs> in, in at least one of them. It might even have been this one. Um, there was an exercise compound, uh, what they called the circuit, and people would walk around it or use it for various forms of exercise. And Eric Williams, who was, of course, familiar with the Greek uh, tragedies and yep. various Greek stories from a classical education, um, <laughs> hit upon the idea of the Trojan horse, uh, which, of course, is very famous, yep. uh, in which, uh, well, you you actually would probably know this one better than I do. Do you want to give some detail on the Trojan horse? Um, well, you see, now you've put me on the spot to see whether <laughs> I can remember any of these details, but it was... Um, it was it was during the 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 sack of Troy, wasn't it? It was the armies of Greece. I believe it? so. <laughs> um, um, where see, I'm going to have to double check this, and if the details are wrong, I'll either look really embarrassed, or you'll hear an edited version of me coming from the future <laughs> to change this now. Um, but I believe it was um, that they were trying to break in and 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 sack Troy as a city, um, um, but were having not much success. So they um, built a giant wooden horse as a gift for for them, and uh, which is lifted, lovely. Which is lovely, you know. <laughs> giant. I don't know why anyone wouldn't accept a giant wooden horse as a gift. I've got the perfect place to put that it's in like my a living pinata. room. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so they so they left it outside the gates as a as a, as a gift for for the um, for Troy and Troy thought, wow, what a lovely gift, and eventually brought it inside. But what they didn't know it was was it that it was full of soldiers um, that basically waited until night time, jumped out of the horse, and then used the fact that they were already inside the walls of the city to sack the city and uh, and successfully take over in that situation. So, so it worked. So, so it worked. <laughs> yeah. So um, Eric Williams was inspired by this story to build a wooden vaulting horse, the sort of vaulting horse you might find in any standard gymnasium. I was going to say, just to be clear, he didn't build like a small wooden rocking horse. Or no, no, like no. That. It was, a, a, as I say, a gymnasium-style vaulting horse, uh, the sort of thing that you still see to this day in um, 
the Olympics. Yeah. Um, so, yep, and so it managed to sign up a whole a whole bunch of uh, prisoners of war um, to take part as vaulters, because uh, of course the point was that it had to be had to appear to be a legitimate um, source of exercise. Mm-hmm. Of course, the Germans were only too happy to sign off on this because if they were spending their time vaulting horses in the middle of the compound, they probably weren't spending their time trying to escape. <laughs> Little did they know. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> and so uh, for the first week uh, of of the escape attempt, they would just send prisoners out to go and vault the horse. Uh, so they didn't start straight away? They didn't the start straight away. In fact, they intentionally overturned the horse on the first day so that the, it could very clearly see underneath right. uh, the horse itself and um it's very clever so that the guards in the watchtower and patrolling the exterior of the camp could see underneath mm-hmm. and they of course put the horse in the same location every single day um this partly so that they secured their own space for vaulting so it wasn't in the way of anyone so, part in the, so the horse didn't live in one area; they moved n- it. No, no, it, it would so it would be kept overnight in I think a space in the theatre, right, um, okay. or in the barber shop, or something like that, and then would be taken out for an hour's exercise every single day, sometimes twice a day. Okay, um, but would be taken out every single day for people to exercise over. Um, after a week of doing this, uh, the they started sending out uh, Codner and Williams. Uh, underneath so they would carry them out so when they were carrying out the vaulting horse they would be inside the vaulting horse and they would take them out and put them on the same location and they started digging the tunnel from the same location in the middle of the compound wow thus shortening the length that you had to tunnel from about 300 feet to around about 100 feet making it not easy but easier as you say (laughs) still a a long tunnel but Um, uh, not as not as difficult as it could have been exactly and and so and and in some ways, you know what's so clever about it is they were hiding in plain sight. Yeah. Um, you know they were they were literally if if the vaulting horse had overturned again, they would have found a great big hole in the middle of the compound <laughs> where there were two people down there digging away. Yeah. So they uh, had to be very careful. I assume had, after that had to be very careful and they had to be pretty good as well. So um, so the people that were vaulting then they were they were in on in on the plan or were somewhere they just, okay. somewhere not all of them were. Uh, some just thought it was a great wheeze um just a a good way of exercise to keep fit while um stuck in in camp and captivity and what have you and and then others uh certainly members of the escape committee were in on on the on the exercise and were certainly taking part as vaulters as well so okay not not all were in on it but some were um and so yeah it was it was seen as a legitimate sport but also used for nefarious means yeah um because it was a relatively short tunnel um they actually managed to complete it in a a relative short period of time just a i think it was around six weeks wow that's Um, yeah that's not a lot of time considering not really i mean you could only dig so far i mean the tunnels weren't i mean they were about they were only as wide as a person basically Mm. you know it wasn't again if you've seen the great escape they look about five feet wide um (laughs) that was as much so that they could fit cameras i was gonna say that's for a crew and everything yeah exactly so it's not a very accurate representation of how big a tunnel actually was and you obviously wanted to minimize how big it was to avoid them collapsing but also the amount that you had to dig out because 
one of the biggest challenges of digging the tunnel was uh, dispersal of sand. I was going to ask you about that, um, yeah. So if you just dumped a whole load of sand in the middle of the compound, the Germans might have got a touch suspicious. <laughs> Someone might notice a pile of sand where there was not a pile of sand previously. Exactly, and also because the so the top, essentially the topsoil layer, uh, was yellow because it was dried out by the sun. Um, but underneath that, it was a sort of greyish colour. So, so it was noticeably different. It was noticeably different. It was, it was yeah. grey versus yellow. And uh, so dispersal of that was very difficult. Mm. And uh, there were various efforts to that. But by and large, on, on this escape, they essentially stuck it in the attic above the theatre. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, as good a place as any. Because they stored the vaulting horse in a annex of the theatre, they essentially just kind of hid the sand directly above it they just cut a hole so 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 what did they do they pulled the sand out from the tunnel put it into the vaulting horse and then when yes, they moved so, it back away so the horse itself had hooks inside uh, drilled into the top of the horse on the inside on the inside oh, exactly right, okay. yeah, and yeah. from there you could hang bags and they would just uh, fill the bags with sand right. and then as they were carrying the two tunnelers back or actually sometimes one tunneler and ultimately, in the final escape, there was as many as three. Gosh. Um, so it must have weighed a ton. You've got to have some <laughs> strong people carrying it back and forth to make it... Especially after an hour's worth of vaulting. Yeah, <laughs> to, and to make it like appear the same weight going out as it is coming in. Exactly, yes. Because obviously, I'm presuming it would be a lot heavier going back out of mm. back out into the theatre than it was coming out onto the forecourt. Precisely, or, it was uh, much heavier. And so when they, when they got it back into the theatre building... Uh, they would overturn it, take out the bags, and just place, hand them directly up into the attic, and they would disperse the sand there. But I mean, by the end of it, there must have been tons of sand up there. Could um, you imagine if the ceiling came down with the, the weight of the sand? It wasn't unknown in other efforts because it's not like this was the only you know tunnel that ever happened. Yeah. And there were hundreds of tunnels that were tried, and sand dispersal was always an issue. Uh, some people tried to send it down the toilet and various <laughs> other efforts like that, and. Um, and of course, famously in the Great Escape, they uh, would uh, walk around in groups and tread it into the ground so that mm. it got mixed in, and dug gardens that sort of thing to mix it into the garden. There was all sorts of ways that they did it, but in this one, they largely stuffed it into the attic of the theatre. Um, as you were describing that, I'm not sure how accurate this is at all because I'm going to admit it's pulled straight from a movie. <laughs> but um, I just had um, a picture of Andy Dufresne. Um, dropping, dropping the dirt down from his wall down the inside of his trouser leg and just sort of stepping it into it the court and then leaving. Basically the same thing. Yeah. Right. Although you're correct, that is uh, a fictional film, great yeah. film. Yeah, yeah, great film. Um, but yeah, essentially it was the same practice. Um, that's precisely what they did. They would have it uh, dropping down the inside of their trousers and they would just tread it into the ground. But that was other escapes, that was not this yeah, one. Yeah, sorry, I keep no, getting no, no, by no. other escapes. Not a problem, there's uh, nothing wrong with segues. They're um, all very interesting, that's why we're doing they, this. They are, exactly, and there are hundreds to look at, yeah. so I'm very excited for to be doing this in 2045. <laughs> um, so yeah, they the disperse it in the theatre. Right. Um as it kind of progressed, they realised they needed a third person to help out with the organisation of the vaulting, some of the digging to ro rotate uh, the tunnelers because it's it's not a very pleasant atmosphere down there. Um, no, I can imagine, and you would have been down there for a period of time. I would have thought at as least well. an hour, Gosh. at least an hour. And you know, if you've ever kind of even just kind of 
crawled underneath your duvet and just breathed for a while it gets warm and yeah. it gets a bit stuffy and disgusting and yeah it was like that but without all the luxuries of being able to get out quickly <laughs> um and because it was only a human human bodies with wide yeah um you could only crawl in and out the same direction you couldn't turn around oh god so you I had to crawl backwards um to get out so if there was a collapse or anything like that um yeah you were uh so you know there wasn't quick reactions if you like you, know, you can no. get out that quickly and i don't suppose if there was something that had gone some wrong behind you you couldn't turn around to fix it or, or help stop stop something like that exactly and that's that's actually kind of why they brought in the third person which was uh philpot who we'll touch upon in the next episode um and so yeah they brought him in and uh ultimately there were three that got out uh, can i just ask though a quick question before mm, go we ahead. move on go ahead because there's there's clearly more people involved in this escape than the three that left. Yeah. yeah. So that means they had willing accomplices who were helping them do this, but had no intention of escaping themselves. Precisely. Yeah. And to that, me, that's strange because you would have thought you would want to be the person who leaves, who gets out. Yes, but I suppose this goes back to the sort of five to fifteen percent thing. You know, there were just because you didn't want to get out yourself and risk being shot at didn't mean you weren't willing to help others who were daft enough to make that <laughs> take that risk um you know the the prison population weren't necessarily against escape efforts they weren't they just weren't necessarily wanting to do it themselves and so you would get willing accomplices who were quite happy to sort of take part in aspects of an escape whether that's uh, security or dispersal or, you know, the, the, I keep going back to the Great Escape, but there were only 200 spaces for escape. Only 76 got out, but there were 600 people involved in this, in the overall effort. Yeah. The, these were people who were doing all all various aspects of it. Um, but, I mean, even 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 in the one, even this one we're talking about, presume, you know, there was only... There seemed to be quite a few more people involved with helping carrying the horse out and yeah. and helping organise the vaulting and doing all that stuff. Who must have been aware of what was happening? So somewhere, uh, certainly the ones who were on the escape committee. And by and large, the rule was that if you were on the escape committee, you couldn't escape yourself because you were because you were the um, in charge of coordinating them. Yeah, the idea was that you weren't allowed to steal any good ideas. Right. So okay. if you were on the escape committee, you were largely not allowed to escape yourself. And if you wanted to make an escape attempt and come up with your own idea, uh, you had to resign from the escape committee. Um, that wow. was largely the rule. I mean, these weren't structural, yeah, uh, official structures that yeah, existed, yeah. but pretty much every serious camp had one. Uh, the senior British officer would be in charge of them, who also largely didn't make any escape efforts. And so, yeah, but as I say, just because, you know, only 5% or so were involved in direct escape, 15% were largely involved in the overall escapes. But you still had 85% of the population who were always willing to help out here and there, maybe lend some food or just a little bit of effort here and then vaulting you know some of them it may be that they were a great gymnast uh, at school and just yeah. wanted to stay fit and thought that's a great idea and if it helps someone get out so be it um 
such a foreign concept to me because I feel like <laughs> I feel like if I were in that situation, I would be one of the people who want to leave, get yeah. out. But then again, I guess I never know because I've never been in that situation, and I, you know, hopefully I never am. Yeah, exa- um, exactly. And, I, and nor have I. And that was always the question I asked myself as a kid you know, when I was reading these books. I was like, I always feel like I'd be one that would want to get out. But then you, if you find yourself in the situation where, I don't know, maybe maybe you've got family at home and you're just kind of thinking, sit out. Yeah, it'll maybe. be fine. <laughs> go I, go back to a nice career, comfortable home. Yeah, wife and two children. I, I guess it's because in those stories, especially the ones that have been sort of fictionalized, the people who escape are the heroes, and you always want to see yourself as as the hero. As but, a, yeah, but I think thinking about it as an adult now, if it were happen to happen now, I would probably just be like, look, it's not it's not great here but I can survive and get out the other side. Exactly. exactly. And I suppose that this is where prisoner war camps were different from normal prisons as well, mm-hmm. as, as we now know them. You know, Although in a prison you've got a jail term, whether that's five years, ten years, whatever, and you don't have that as a prisoner war. Um, you don't know how long the war is going to last, that's but true. ultimately the war is going to come to an end and you will be free at the end of that. It's not a permanent... Yeah situation so you just want to kind of sit out and get to the end and as i say the majority did that was precisely what the majority wanted to do unless you're the tenacious little buggers that these are yeah exactly exactly and you know i I think in a way that we aren't these days they were brought up more and more on uh, adventure stories in a way that we aren't so much nowadays obviously the classics like treasure island and kidnap which i uh, I've mentioned before. Yeah, great stories. Uh, I suppose you know, Robbins and Crusoe, that sort of thing. They are great stories, but they're not. I don't think they're as familiar with millennials um, <laughs> as they perhaps were in the nineteen twenties and thirties. No, that's true. When these guys were growing up, and yeah. without trying to sort of be post-imperial, um, the imperial story was still a relevant thing in these days. It wasn't in, in a way that it's not now. You know, we don't have the empire anymore. Yeah. So people going off to, you know, the likes of Livingston going off to find Victoria Falls as they now are, were exciting stories. And, you know, people were brought up on these in a way that we're not so much now. We're almost discouraged from uh, hero worshipping heroes of the empire yeah. in a way that they weren't then. You know, they were encouraged to follow these people um you know lawrence of arabia that sort of thing was a very current figure and stories who have escaped from the first world war were very uh, current as well it was only 21 years between the war and there were escapes in the first world war as well and so um you know the adventure club uh, i think it was called the escaping club um by uh johnny evans i think his name was um was a bestseller between the wars and it was his story of escaping from a camp in the First World War. And mm-hmm. so uh, The Road to Endor is another one uh, from the First World War. And you know these were current stories. And, and a number of them do make reference to having read these stories as young boys and then had their chance to replicate them wow. in their own adulthood. Yeah, And I think nowadays we don't have that so much. Just because I read them as a child, yeah. that's as much to do with because of the fact that my dad grew up during the war. And so was familiar with these stories from his own teenage years and saw that I was interested and so encouraged me to read them. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that was standard practice amongst our generation. No, I have to say it wasn't for me um, and and, and for for other people I know, you know, 
or uh, anyone I know for that matter. Um, I think it's safe to say you are the person who I know who has been the most involved, like story-wise, with with these sort of stories. Probably safe to say, yeah, of, of our circle, um, yeah. certainly. Um, and so, yeah, that that's, I suppose, where you find that five to fifteen percent of escapers are from that subsection. Okay. Um, Speaking of. How did they? How did they prepare for the actual escape then? So yeah, the, I mean, there there are two parts to an escape. You have to get out the camp, but then once you're out the camp, you've still got to get out of occupied Europe. Yeah, which yeah, is, cause it doesn't just finish once you get out the ground at the other side. Yeah, exactly. And uh, in actual fact, I th- I think the second part was the harder part. You know, you, the real work starts once you've got out the camp. Yeah. Uh, when in camp, you've got as much time as you like to prepare and dig and I guess yeah, build you, a vaulting horse out of Red Cross parcels, and <laughs> um, you got loads of time. And and I guess if you if you're in the camp and you sort of say to yourself amongst your groups, right, we'll try it today. Something happens and you go, right, we can't do it today. We'll be back tomorrow. Once you've got through and once you've made that decision, you can't delay anything by a day. You can't. No, no, relax. You, not at you all. just have to crack straight on with it. Exactly, and you need you need to get as far away as possible, as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and often that uh, dictated how people travelled once outside the camp. Okay, but they, all the preparations, of course, took place within the camp. And so uh, you prepare your clothes because you had to assimilate. You couldn't exactly wander around in an RAF uniform during. In, in occupied Germany, well, not not that Germany was occupied, but occupied Europe in yeah. the middle of the Second World War. If you were in an RAF uniform, you were probably going to be picked up pretty quickly. Um, it's you know, safe to say. Mm-hmm. Equally, if you're in a British Army uniform, um, yeah. they might notice it. Yeah, um, possibly. Yeah, so you had to find a way to convert either your uniform or some other uh, form of clothing into civilian-style clothing. Uh, you also had to take food because, of course, you weren't given uh, ration coupons. Um, quite often, you had to take money with you, especially if you were traveling by train or staying in hotels, which some did, and they did in this escape. Uh, so you needed money for that. How did you get hold? How did one get hold of money in that situation? So they that was smuggled in, right? Okay, um, not via Red Cross parcels, and this is uh, very important for understanding how escapes worked. Was that actually? Red Cross parcels were avoided like the plague for smuggling purposes uh, because they were so dependent upon the food in the Red Cross parcels to feed the prisoners. Um, they couldn't risk um, oh. ma- the Germans basically saying these are being used for smuggling. Yeah. Um, therefore, we will cut this supply off. And of course, if you're trying to encourage people to escape, it is in your best interest for them to have that additional yeah. food. So they yeah. always avoided that. So they were smuggled in via... Um, you know, parents might send it in, uh, or false charities were established to smuggle these things in. And, wow. uh, they were always sent to the escape committee and collected by the escape committee for distribution amongst those who were attempting escape. Uh, Pat Reed, who was the uh, escape officer at Colditz, mm-hmm. he eventually did escape himself. He came up with his own escape methods and resigned and what have you and escaped himself he estimated that you needed around about 60 Reichmarks to get out and travel away and for various uh, purposes um, in this one they actually uh, carried about 100 each uh, uh, one had 150 and the other had 50 but of course they were travelling together so they had about 200 Reichmarks yeah. for this journey um, but they estimated that around about 60 Reichmarks would be sufficient to 
make an escape. And so, yes, they, they were distributed that. They would get it from the escape committee and that would then pay for various things such as train tickets, uh, hotel bookings, food if they were off the ration. And there were some non-coupon meals. I think I'm right in saying that every cafe and restaurant had to provide at least one non-coupon meal. It would just be things like a potato soup or something like that. Okay. I mean, it wouldn't be particularly spectacular. Certainly wouldn't have anything like meat in it. But something you could sustain yourself but off so- Something that you could feed yourself with so that... Um, you got to remember the food that was coming through in the Red Cross parcels was scarce. Um, coffee, chocolate. Uh, these were not readily available in occupied Europe. And so if you pulled out a bar of chocolate, you were you had a very high chance of being caught. Because <laughs> chocolate, had chocolate hadn't been seen since 1939. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you had to be quite careful with how you used the food that was available in um, the camps. And often... Uh, the food that was available in the camps was better than what was available in civilian life oh, in right. occupied Europe. Um, it's how they managed to bribe a lot of guards by saying, here's a jar of coffee, I need money. Or photographic material for creating false papers and that right. sort of thing, stuff. Because well, it's, it's, it's interesting, you sort of, you're saying about, uh, interesting, um, about how they use the food and stuff, because... Part of what I um, read in the reports mm. was that when they were, and I'm sure you'll touch on this in a minute, because mm. in case you hadn't figured out by now, in this conversation with this information, I am the idiot. Dave knows much more than I do. <laughs> but um, I read that they would go and hide in the lavatory um, to yes. eat their food and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I, I guess that's part of the reason why, because people didn't, if you got spotted eating a ration yeah, or, or, or prison food, then that would be a giveaway for, for why... So, so one way they they got around um, pulling out a bar of chocolate was they made what was uh, sometimes referred to as dog food or um, variations on that theme, which was essentially boiled sugar, condensed milk, chocolate, oatmeal, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. and made it into a really, really condensed almost biscuit. So the, right. the, there was they would cut them up into cubes and they'd be really rich, high in content, so you could only eat a small amount at a time. But it, it would almost look like a little block of fudge. Right, okay. Not that fudge was readily available either, but it, it's the sort of thing you could just pop in your but mouth. Something a bit more discreet that you could just A bit pop more in. discreet than pulling out a bar of Hershey. Um which <laughs> you know might have given the game away. Yeah. Um and so, yeah, they, they could just pop that in their mouth and eat their rations that way. Um, Philpot, who escaped with them, he had worked, I think, I think I'm right in saying that before the war, he had worked in margarine production. Uh-huh. And so because of his knowledge of the industry, he actually used that as part of his cover. He claimed to be a Norwegian working in the margarine industry in Norway and was on a research trip or something like that. I'm sure we'll cover it in greater depth yeah. <laughs> later. But he used his knowledge of that and he had actually been collecting margarine samples so that he he had them as cover. Right. But also to eat. But also to eat. Okay. If if he just needed something not that it's with it was, calories, you know. Exactly. Not that it's the most nutritionally valuable yeah. of food sources, but it was there. It was there as an option. Um, so that you could eat them if you wanted to. Right. Right, I apologise. I keep getting us distracted. Yes, I think um, so, <laughs> so I think this is guy- gonna be the longest episode ever. <laughs> Um, so the guy, they've basically, what, where do we get to? They've got to the point where they've broken. So we, yeah, the, we, we've got to the tunnel is built and they're about to break out. We've covered their preparation of clothes, documents, that sort of thing. You know, the, the, there were a lot of, um, papers that you needed to travel quite often, you know, letters from 
uh, fake companies saying that this is an employee who we've sent to Germany and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, you needed what was called an Ausweis, which was uh, uh, work paperwork. Wow. Um, okay. Th- oh no, no, sorry. Uh, the Ar- Ausweis was um, general ID. The Arbeitskarte was a uh, work um, to prove that you were an employee, uh, that you had a job, all this sort of stuff. Um, but they they carry various other pieces of documents. And in actual fact, uh, Codner and Williams carried about eight or nine pieces of uh, paperwork uh, each, which was very extensive, actually. Um, more than the average was carried, but uh, was more than sufficient to for the purposes that they needed them for. And this, of course, comes back to having loads of time to prepare this stuff. Mm-hmm. You could use the time in camp to prepare what you needed for what was a relatively short break once yeah. you're out in the way you're trying to get away as quickly as possible you don't want to be hanging around for months on end you want no. to try and get away and some did some could get away and hang around for months on end but uh, in in the case of the wooden horse they were all away by within a very short space of time um so they broke out of the tunnel on the 29th of october 1943 uh, they purposely broke out at six o'clock in the evening so this was after the final parade of the day so they were counted in on the 29th of October. However, there was a train at 7 o'clock from the nearby train station at Sagan, um, which uh, was the train that would take them to Frankfurt. The point of that was, um, by being able to take a fast train to Frankfurt, uh, or towards Frankfurt, on at 7 o'clock in the evening, the next parade wouldn't have been until the following morning. So by the time that they realised someone had escaped and counted and worked out who it was, because they had to go through every single prisoner, right. uh, cross-reference them with the paperwork that they had in the camp to work out who the prisoners that were escaped. So they'd know fairly quickly that two or three had got out. But they wouldn't know who it was. Didn't know who it was. Okay. You, you always had a couple of hours bought. Yeah. But by getting away at 6 o'clock and then getting the 7 o'clock train, they bought themselves... A significant amount of time because the, it would probably not be until the following appell as it was known um eight o'clock the next morning something like that which by the time they'd gone through all the paperwork you're probably talking about midday the following day well, so before, you get like a day and a half almost um well yeah an evening and half a day yeah, i suppose yeah. um in which to get as far away as possible now if you were traveling by foot you could cover some decent distance in that time but you wouldn't necessarily have got that far. But if you were travelling by train, you could be some distance away. And in actual fact, I think I'm right in saying that they were, uh, in the case of Codner and Williams, they were actually in Stettin by the following uh, day. Um, so they did well then? They did very well. They got away, travelled by train, and were in Stettin by the time, which is a coastal port, um, by the time that the the camp probably knew who it was. Now, I, I know from some of my other research that um, the initial... Uh, manhunt, if you like, to recapture people would start at a sort of 10 mile radius of the camp and then it would reach out to 30, 50, 100 miles. But that would take a couple of days at a time. So wow. <clears throat> they were well out of the um, radius of the camp by the following afternoon. By noon the following day, they were well away. Um, so there was a nearby train station, yeah. um, which of course they, they took and travelled all the way to Stettin. What's interesting from from this one uh, for me is that although they um, they didn't take a direct train to Stettin, they would take a series of local trains. Right. So they got out of the initial uh, manhunt radius fairly quickly, but after that instead of taking a train from, I don't know, Zagan to Stettin, they would go to um, 
Frankfurt and then to Kustrin and then Stettin itself. So by taking a series of local trains, um, you were in the, in essence taking the train directly to a, a point of high military interest as a dockyard would be, um, raised suspicions and therefore there was a higher greater a greater likelihood of paper checks. So by taking a series of small local trains, no one's really interested if you were heading to Kustrin. Right. It's not an uninteresting place, but it wasn't but it doesn't have the same value. It doesn't have the same military value, yeah. so there weren't the paper checks. They might periodically be one, but it wasn't as high risk. And so you were able to avoid these paper checks. Um, although there were some in the, in this escape, it wasn't there was less suspicion of them because they were travelling as a local commuter would. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not not dissimilar almost from travelling from Clapham Junction to Waterloo. It it's a standard journey. Yeah. Um Waterloo may have been your final destination but you might have taken a circuitous route to get there. Yeah. Uh, which increased the likelihood of success. Right, okay. Uh, by avoiding being checked. It's almost like they thought about this before they went. It's around. almost like they did, yeah. exactly. Um, so, yeah, they got to Stettin within two days um, through this method of travel, and but ultimately spent nearly two weeks uh, trying to find a ship to take them all across the Baltic Sea to neutral Sweden. Wow, so travel that fast <clears throat> to then just be stopped at the end. Exactly, yeah. Um, there were actually five neutral uh, countries in Europe during the war. Uh, that's it. So your your destinations were a little bit limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was Sweden. Um, Ireland, Republic of Ireland was one. Um, Portugal and Spain. And then, of course, Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the five neutral countries you could travel to. Yeah. Um, everywhere else was either occupied or a belligerent. Um, so... Uh, you could either uh, there were essentially two routes. You could you could uh, if you wanted to try and get to the Soviet Union. Um, that brought with it its own issues. Yeah, and some some <laughs> did do that, um, but not in this case. So in this case, they they headed towards the Baltic ports and to try and get a neutral ship uh, over to neutral Sweden. Um, so they they were they were trying this for over a week and staying in hotels and which of course was eating up their money but the whole point was to try and look respectable so that the because if you look like a tramp you were more likely to be picked up right okay uh, by the local police they weren't necessarily looking for you as an escape prisoner of war but you were more likely to be picked up by the local police if you looked like because you looked out of place or scruffy or, exactly yeah. yeah so the idea was to try and keep themselves looking presentable Stay in a hotel, have a shower, have a wash, yep. eat food without kind of looking scruffy. You could even you know press the clothes rather than sleeping in them, yeah, um, or at least take them off rather than sleeping yeah. in them, so that they didn't look slept in. And um, but of course that eats up your money. You could only stay in a hotel for a, two days at a time before your papers might be checked by the police or taken away. In which case you were then travelling without papers, so you had to keep changing hotels. And there's only so many hotels available, especially in a dock. A, a, a dock city where which would be prime bombing yeah. target yeah so it was a good chance that a number of hotels were bombed out thus limiting your opportunities further um so sometimes they had to sleep rough um but by and large they did manage to find a hotel and just kept on moving around and uh the other advantage of kind of uh the way they travel was they they could take a shaving kit with them yeah uh which then meant as i say they could keep presentable I, I was actually about to say because you were saying about looking presentable and things like that one thing that intrigued me when i was reading through the report was there was a concern when they hadn't found a place to stay for a couple of days not 
because they hadn't slept well or anything like that, but largely because they hadn't had a chance to shave in a couple of days. Yes, yeah. And that was I found that interesting because, you know, if they hadn't shaved <clears throat> then, that was a genuine concern of um of getting caught and that i found that quite particularly interesting just that that was a real concern and enough that it was in the report that they were worried about not being able to shave yeah i mean what what's a small detail for us you know we might be required to look clean shaven at work yeah is not quite life or death but you know you might get recaptured if you haven't shaved in a couple of days that's yeah that's madness to Ex- me right now exactly without the context <laughs> that's crazy um and so, yeah, the, there was a there was a need to keep clean shaven. If you were going to travel in that manner, you had to look like you were traveling in that yeah. manner. Um, you couldn't really afford to let anything slip. And you know, there there were in it, there were paper checks, and you know, it was high risk to travel by train, but it also gave you a faster uh, mode of transport than walking, and so you had a better chance of getting away. So it was risk and reward, really. Mm-hmm. Um, what I find interesting about this escape is how often they use the cinema. Yes, uh, yeah, that's very true. Um, so they would go and sit in the cinema and just... I think it's this one where they say they ended up watching the same film about three or four times. Yeah, I think they said four times, yeah. <laughs> and they weren't in English either. You know, they didn't have a clue what was being said. I know, I did like that. The line, I think, was something like, we watched the same film four times and didn't have a clue what was happening in it or something yeah, like that. Yeah, e- exactly. Let's see if I can find it. Um um, and, and, you know, because I guess that's because a cinema is a good way to hide out for a few hours at a time. You know, you go into the darkened room, watch the movie um, and, you know, the couple of hours have passed while you watch it. So it's a good place to hide and not be searched. Exactly. Yeah. And it was dark. So no one was necessarily looking for you. Yeah. Um, you, you know, it was a great way of just kind of hiding out and yeah. it, it's not the only escape that actually this takes place. And there are others that mention this. Um this method of again avoiding you know hiding in plain sight um you're doing what normal people do normal people go to the cinema um yeah so you're doing the normal thing but again this costs money this is where the you know if you're going to look like you travel in this manner and act like a normal person and act like a local commuter or businessman this sort of thing you have to be able to spend money like they do yeah yeah, so that's where the money source is quite important so yes having arrived in uh, Stettin and trying to find a Swedish ship to take them over to Sweden um, their efforts to try and make contact were always quite interesting because um, in, in some cases they would try and stow away themselves and in other cases they would try and make contact with a Swedish sailor who was um, away on land you yeah, know, uh, who was sympathetic to their sort of cause exactly, I mean they were they were technically neutral but they weren't necessarily unwilling to be helpful yeah um, and so there was various efforts to try and get hold of um, Swedish or actually Danish sailors because although the Dane although Denmark was occupied Danish sailors would regularly um, sail across to Sweden as well mm-hmm. um, and so uh, yeah they eventually realized that just making contact directly with a sailor was probably the best way of doing it and of course there were uh, workmen from other parts of occupied Europe, especially French, uh, were often shipped off to other parts of occupied Europe to work. Essentially, it's slave labour, really. Um, but if because there was a high high number of Frenchmen who were of military age, but un- realistically unwilling to serve, or the Germans weren't particularly wanting them to serve due to the high likelihood of desertion or 
Um, <laughs> uh, let's put it this way the French weren't willing to serve them and the Germans didn't really want them to desert so yeah. they, they didn't tend to put them into the army as right, such okay. they put them into what it was in effect slave labour whether that was emptying docks that sort of thing or uh, mining anything really along those lines um, and so what, one episode was uh, they managed to make contact with some Frenchmen who uh, took them to a cafe and um it's it's almost worth reading this out because it's have, you, have you got it? I've, yeah, I've got it. So yeah, you go and read it out. I think I know which part you're going to mention. <coughs> yeah. it. It's quite good. Um, and so yeah, the, so it's a he he took us to another cafe where he sat us down at a table and told the waitress in a loud voice that we were Swedes and that if any more Swedes came in, they were to show us to our table. He then walked out and a German woman came across to us and started to talk in Swedish. Of course, Williams and Codner didn't speak a word of Swedish. No. Mm-hmm. Uh, Williams immediately mumbled something and walked out while Codner tried to explain that Williams was Swedish and he was French. Um, and then they say it was a nasty moment. But, I mean, essentially you've got a, f- a wild Frenchman declaring them to be from a country that they don't speak a word of the language in a country that is occupied, that is yeah. their uh, enemy during the war. And a German woman comes over and tries to start speaking to them in the language that they don't speak. Yeah. Um, this is a very high-risk approach to being... And that's and that's all through that, the, the Frenchman was a stranger to them. He mm. was and and from what I read in the report, it seemed like he was trying to help. But it was almost like when you walk into the room and be like, "Okay, if there's anybody here from this country, come <laughs> and talk to me over here." And you're like, you couldn't be any more suspicious yeah. in that in that statement. <clears throat> I mean, they even say he was so obviously a conspirator that he was more of a liability than an asset. <laughs> um. Someone who's too keen, too eager. And, you know, I said right at the start that what I like about these stories is the little details that come out. Um, I'm sure we'll come to it in, in a much later episode, but the, there, there's one where a Blackwatch soldier was uh, essentially didn't get picked up at Dunkirk, so was walking through occupied France to try and get away via Spain, etc. And he spoke flawless German and French and ended up getting a lift from a, a German officer. Uh, to the nearest town. It's just these little details. Wow. That, you know, it's a small episode. It was probably only a couple of hours of what was several weeks worth of escape. Yeah. Um, but it's these details that come out that I just find so interesting because these are true stories. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. this this isn't a detail that's been made up for a fictional story. Uh, well, although that's not this escape. So, yeah. but there there was one one detail in this escape that I wanted to pick out on, which was Wednesday the third of November, and this is this is what the report says. We had breakfast with a colonel and two captains of the German army. All three produced bread from their pockets to eat with their coffee. We produced American ration biscuits, feeling quite in order. Um, and it's just this idea of these two prisoners of war who you know managed to book themselves a nice little hotel you know yeah. that probably wasn't spectacular we're not talking about the ritz here but they've booked themselves a nice little hotel they've gone down to the um breakfast room for a bit of breakfast and uh, ordered themselves a nice little coffee and ended up sitting down with a, a colonel and two captains of the german army i mean and this and this is a few days into them being there isn't it yeah really? they've been out towards... about five days about at this point so they're just sort of sitting there and just like well what can you do let's just have breakfast with the germans yeah exactly <laughs> exactly and it's, it's it's these little details where i mean in, some, in many ways it's very high risk yeah yeah incredibly <laughs> um and yet they get away with it and <laughs> which is all the more remarkable because williams didn't speak a word of german codner spoke it but williams couldn't speak a word of german and oh, so they managed to get away wandering around without any German for in fact the the only German he mastered and it's 
they they make quite a big deal of it in the book, and it is actually it's mentioned in this report as well. The only German he ever actually managed to master was the phrase "Ich bin Ausländer." I think I'm right in saying that it means I am a foreigner and therefore couldn't speak German. So he mastered that, um, <laughs> and that that was the extent of his German. So I mean, in some ways, he could sit there with a colonel and two captains of the German army and just. <laughs> claim to be a foreigner the only risk then is if he claims to be french or norwegian that they actually yeah. speak that language but as i said risk and reward that's uh that's what you get when like a swedish speaking friend from a short while ago <laughs> exactly exactly um so yeah i mean they, they were in they ended up being in around the docks for nearly two weeks uh, 12 days in total they Gosh, got that's a long time when you when you just want to get out yeah exactly you know you must you must they would have been running out of money, out of their own food, um, out of hotels to stay in because yeah. you couldn't just kind of keep circling around. And so uh, they, they ended up, you know, at some stage they even ended up uh, spending the night in one of the French uh, work camps. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, they ended up spending the night there and I think it was through the Frenchman there that they actually ended up making contact with a Swedish sailor. So of course the ships would be coming in and out so it wasn't always the same sailor so you had to try and catch them when they were in, uh, you know, on land, out of the docks. Yeah. Uh, because wasn't wasn't there a, po- a point at this one where they had done some like research and walked around the docks themselves? Yeah, seen a Swedish ship, uh, um, and then gone back the next day to in an attempt to get on them. By that point, it gone. It had gone, and there was a German ship in its place. Exactly. Yeah, and you're just like, oh, let's not carry on any further. <laughs> Just double yes. back exactly and you know that must also be you know just heartbreaking <laughs> you know you've, yeah, you've, you've identified what the ship you want to get on you go back the next day thinking right brilliant gonna find a way find a sailor or even just stow away yourself and yeah. just find a nice little hiding place and then yeah it's gone um so they eventually managed to make contact with actually it says you're a danish sailor um uh, who who was happy to take them on on his ship um, which is great, um, and there are there are pluses and minuses to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the positives are, of course, they were getting away; they were on a ship. Yeah. Uh, the the minuses to that that although the Danish ship was going to Sweden, it was going via Copenhagen, which was in occupied Denmark, and then on to Oslo, which was in occupied Norway. So there was quite a lot of. Um, you, you you were sort of get you know, it's very much uh, out of the frying pan and into the fire. Yeah, and and then I mean, because would there be searches of the ship and things like that at every single have... occupied dock? Yeah, exactly. Oh, and so you've got to find a way to stow away and hide for every one of the searches. It, exactly, and you know you weren't just because they were neutral. It didn't necessarily guarantee that they were willing to take them. Yeah. Because um, I, I, I don't know this, but I imagine if if you're like a sailor or someone who works on those boats, you would get approached fairly often by people trying to escape through. I, you I, I'd imagine so, but also if you were in the same way now that you know if if we break the law in a foreign country just because we're not nationals, we've still broken the law and subject to their laws. Yeah, and the laws under the Gestapo were pretty brutal. So if the Gestapo caught you smuggling. A British prisoner of war. Hey, you wouldn't want that. The the prisoner of war actually was safe. Um, he wouldn't. He was uh, extremely unlikely to be shot. Um, despite a very famous episode, um, 
you know, post Great Escape when fifty yeah. of them were shot. Uh, that that was the exception rather than the rule, and which is one of the reasons why it is so famous, because uh, it was essentially mass murder. Um, but by and large, as long as you could um, show your prisoner of war disc, which proved that you were a prisoner of war, you you were safe, you were taken back to your camp, uh, spend a bit of time in solitary confinement, and then free to make another attempt. Um, the sailor, on the other hand, would be lined up against the wall pretty summarily and shot. Um, so it was high risk. It yeah, was, wow, that's incredibly which high. Is, which is why, although they were neutral, they weren't necessarily willing to take them. Yeah. Um, and so you either had to find a hiding space yourself, or you had to find someone who was willing to take you. Mm -hmm. um, and in actual fact, in, in this case, when they got to Copenhagen... Uh, they were actually taken off the ship and hidden in a flat, um, I think, by the Danish underground. Right. Um, which is not uncommon for the sailors to have links to them because obviously the, the underground wanted them. Yeah. Wanted their services too. And so uh, they would they would hide, they hid out in the flat for a day or two in Copenhagen. And then they were taken back to a ship and, uh, as I say, sailed to Oslo. And then from Oslo, they were taken to Stronstadt, first of all, and then from there to Stockholm, which, of course, was where the consul, the British consul, was in neutral Sweden. Right. Um, where they actually made contact again with Philpot. Oh, really? Um, so they met back up with him? Exactly, yeah. He had uh, successfully got back uh, and made his way to Stockholm as well and was actually waiting for them. He made oh. an even... I mean, don't don't get me wrong, as much as they hung around and wait, looking for a ship for 12 days, two weeks was a pretty rapid escape. That, that was The fact that they got to the dock in two days and then had to be delayed, That's that sounds incredibly impressive. Yeah, exactly. But uh, Philpott actually got away even quicker and was... Uh, I think he was in Sweden... <laughs> within under a week maybe and let, let me just quickly check that so fast i do have it in front of me if you just give me a second um five days five days five wow. days from escape to sweden neutrality that's so fast um yeah it's very impressive so he was actually waiting a full full what nine days for them in <laughs> stockholm so um and, and from from stockholm they actually ended up staying in stockholm for about a month Right, okay. Um, until they could organise a flight back uh, from Stockholm. They'd fly from Stockholm all the way back to, quite often, uh, Scotland. I think I'm right in saying that they flew into RAF Lookers, which is in Fife, near St Andrews. Right, okay. Um, and then they'd come down from Scotland. Exactly, because it's be the, the nearest landing spot. Yeah. If you go uh, over, over Scandinavia. I guess, yeah, straight, yeah. Um, although Norway was occupied, it was a risky flight as these things always were um there were ways of you know you could fly back um and yeah so they quite often land in scotland and in this case they landed in raf lookers and not not long after christmas so i imagine they got uh, 29th of december 1943 so i imagine they kind of rushed off to spend christmas with their family or at least <laughs> have some sort of celebration with their family i would hope so yeah yeah um, and so, yeah, the, one of the reasons I, I wanted to start on the wooden horse, a number of reasons. First of all, it's a very innovative escape. You know, to, to manage to dig a tunnel from the middle of the compound. Um, when people are watching you every day. Exactly. That's crazy. It's, uh, you know, it's, in many ways it's ingenious. You yeah, know, it's, yeah. It's one of the cleverest escapes, I think, from the entire war. Um, that's not to say there weren't other examples of escaping genius that took place, um, but 
I, I just think it's one of the most intelligent, innovative escapes that took place, as I say, by digging the tunnel right in plain sight in the middle of the compound and getting out and then getting away so quickly. Um, just it, It's got so much going for it. I, yeah. I just find it so interesting. But also, uh, it was one of the um, first escapes that was to be published after the war so the first version of the book was published in 1945 it was then rewritten in 1949 and published in 1949 under the title of the wooden horse the first version was known as goon in the block uh, a goon being a derogatory term for a german guard uh, amongst the prisoners of war um so goon in the block was the first version of it in 1945 and then that was rewritten so quickly after it finished very quickly afterwards and uh, so it, it kind of established quite an early precedent in the post-war narrative of escapes Mm -hmm. and so it was a good place to start in that sense um because of that it was also one of the first films that was produced and you know i mentioned the great escape but there were a number of escape films that were made such as the coldest story uh the great escape of course and the wooden horse i mean the great escape is one of the later ones it was uh, released in 1963 which is still only 18 years after the end of the war i mean it's not it's not long, but no. uh, so when you know, in that context, the film The Wooden Horse was released in 1950, so only five years after the war, only one year after the book was published. And in actual fact, there were prisoners of war who were extras in the film, really. Um, that's from, quite interesting from, from the original camp. Uh, yeah. that some people who were doing the vaulting in the film were prisoners well, the of war. From the prison of, oh, wow, that's incredible! I believe, actually. I believe so. Um, maybe that's an urban myth um but it, but it's on the imd trivia imdb I, I, trivia i choose to believe that that's true it, it must though. be if it's on imdb it must be true because <laughs> everything on the internet is true yeah exactly it's uh flawless um and and so it, it set an early precedent in terms of published uh, escape stories but then of course it had the impact of being one of the early films as well yeah and uh so and it was also one of the first books that I read in terms of the escape stories I mentioned earlier about how I read these when I was a young lad. And it was one of the very first books that I read. And so I've been familiar with this story from about the age of eight or nine. And so it seemed very appropriate to have that, have the wooden horse escape as the first episode of the podcast for you, the war is over. I, 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 I have to also say just a sort of small personal story that I will interject slightly here. <laughs> I know where this is going. Um, uh, having, you know, having known Dave for a while, um, just a short while ago, earlier this year, we did a an escape room for his birthday. We did. Um, which was a World War Two themed prisoner of war, um, had to escape from the POW camp. And um, in the corner of the room, when you first walked in, there was a wooden horse there just was sat a in the corner, yep. um, a wooden vaulting horse that, for the rest of us, we all kind of went, oh, that's a nice aesthetic, yeah, everything that's there, looking around the room. He immediately got excited about this <laughs> about this horse in the corner of the room and immediately knew that at some point we would be crawling through a tunnel 
the lead from underneath that horse yep. because of this story. Yep. Um, and I've never seen a man more excited to, when we got to that puzzle and we're trying to figure it out, to volunteer to be the man that went underneath <laughs> to figure out the puzzle to get out so he could be the, the first man to crawl through the tunnel. Yeah, but I mean, e- even greater detail of that was the music oh, that, yes. that came on because as soon as you wor- worked out the tunnel through this uh, wooden vaulting horse, they started playing the theme tune to The Great Escape. They did, yeah, just very quietly in the <laughs> background it just just appeared as he crawled underneath and they he figured it out you just heard that music kick in oh it was a glorious detail but yeah. it was good fun but that's 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 how that i could tell that's how ingrained this story and yeah. from there probably many of the others are ingrained in you and your personality just from that moment of excitement of seeing that horse in the corner and knowing before the rest of us in the room you knew before us yeah that that was going to be happening. But I didn't want to ruin the fun of working out how we got there. Yeah, exactly. I didn't want to go straight to it because, you know, it's part of the fun is working out how you reach the point where you get to climb through uh, the vaulting horse. Yeah, and, so and that's exactly it. You didn't mention it until after, until we had got to that point and yeah. you were just like, yeah, I knew that was happening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that, that, that was the story of William, Williams and Codner's escape from via the wooden horse. Okay, um, well, thank you, everybody, for listening to this week's episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. Um, If you have, um, please consider subscribing to the podcast. Uh, We can be found on Apple iTunes, um, Google Podcasts, or uh, any basically any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can follow us on Twitter on at F-I-T-W-I-O. If you'd like to send us a more long-form message, then you can also email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O pod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.